Well, good morning. Welcome to Grace City. My name is David Hederman. I'm the teaching pastor here. Thank you so much for joining us online and being a part of our community this morning. So we've said it earlier this month, but this January marks 10 years for us as a church at Grace City. And as I think back on the past decade, I'm incredibly grateful and humbled that God would allow us to be a part of what he's doing in and through and around the city of Jackson. I think back to our time starting at an insurance building to then years unloading a trailer to set up for a worship service in a school. And then a couple of years ago, we were able to move into this worship space. And not only could you see how God, you know, worked in our midst, taking us from location to location, but just all along the way, he was building for himself a people and forming for himself a people to participate in the redemptive work that he's doing in our community. And so when I think back on the last 10 years, it also makes me look forward to the next 10 and, and what I hope would be true of our church and of us as a people in and around Grace City. And with that in mind, I'm drawn to a passage of scripture in Luke 5. In Luke 5, we get one of these moments in Jesus's life and ministry that I think all of us would have want, wanted to have been there. Uh, it's early in his ministry, so it's, it's kind of like good vibes all around. Everyone's just excited to be there, to be in and around Jesus. Like the, the crowds are growing because he's preaching and teaching and connecting them to the hope of the kingdom of God. The crowds are growing because he's demonstrating the power of the kingdom of God by healing the sick and, and having mercy on those whom are afflicted. And, and I mean, come on, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, I think we'd want to be there for, for those occasions, right? To be able to, to watch someone who's blind be able to see, to be able to watch someone who's been afflicted with leprosy to be cleansed, to, to see those who've struggled with a sickness or ailment their entire life, to in one moment be made new. I mean, talk about joy and hope and excitement and just awe, like, wow, I can't believe we just saw that happen. So the, it's those times the emotions will be very real, not just for the person being healed, but also for those who are watching and taking it in. And so I think it's just one of those moments that I think we would all want to have been there to be able to watch and see Jesus love and minister and serve in the way that he did. But you know, with what we know about Jesus, that happened a lot, right? Like wherever he preached, people listened and the crowds grew. Whenever he healed the afflicted and had mercy on those in distress, the crowds grew and the people were shocked by what they witnessed. But apparently on this day in Luke chapter five, there was something different about what happened. This day stood out from the rest because it made a mark on the disciples and it made a mark on the early church, so much so to where this one event is recorded in three out of the four gospels. And I think one of the things that makes this occasion unique is that in this one occasion, this one passage, you get four different responses to Jesus. Two are correct and two are not. And as I think about 10 years of Grace City, the past 10 years, I think about our, our future and where we're headed. I have a hope for us in the next 10 years. I have a hope for my life and your life over the next 10 years and really over the next 10 days and even 10 minutes. And it's that we would have a right response to Jesus. Because there are a lot of ways you can respond to Jesus. There are a lot of ways you can respond to him. And, and many of the responses to Jesus can lead to frustration, can lead to futility. But there are responses that can lead us to discover life. There are responses to Jesus that lead us to experience his love. There are responses to Jesus that move us to being an active participant in his ongoing mission in this world. I want us to have the right response to Jesus. So go to Luke chapter five, verse 17 through 26, because we're gonna see these different responses to Jesus. And I think from this story, you and I can get hope 
for our own. So go ahead and be making your way there. I'll set up the text just with this. Again, this is early in Jesus's earthly ministry. Word is just now starting to spread about this rabbi Jesus, but there's something different about him. There, he might be more than just a rabbi. Now, the Pharisees, scribes, religious leaders of the day, they too are aware of Jesus and have come to listen to him, and rightly so. Um, They were charged with guarding against any heretical teaching that might lead the Jewish people astray. And Jesus is a a new rabbi at this point. He's preaching, growing a following, gaining a following. And so uh, it's right for them to come and listen. So really what we should know is at the start of this interaction, uh, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they're, they're probably more neutral than we would think. Although by the end of it, they are ready to charge Jesus with blasphemy. So that's all the setup that I'm going to give you. Uh, let's read the text. And we're going to read the full account together. And then we'll come back and, uh, and look at a, a few focused parts of this passage. Luke chapter 5, verse 17 through 26. One day Jesus was teaching and Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the towels into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen some remarkable things today. One passage, four responses. You've got the response of the religious leaders. You've got the response of the crowds. You've got the response of the man on the mat and the men carrying the mat. One passage, four responses. We're just going to look at two of them today. We'll look at the the response of the crowds and of the men carrying the mat. And we're going to start with those guys, those who carried their friend to Jesus, because we get their response to Jesus in these opening verses. Uh, Verse 18, we see the power of the Lord was was with Jesus to heal the sick. And then their response is verse 19. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. They respond by bringing their friend to Jesus. It's telling in that you have a a really large crowd who's, who's all gathered to hear Jesus, right? And within this crowd, you've got the religious, you've got the curious, and you've got those that might have just walked up and seen the commotion, right? You've got this large crowd who are hearing Jesus, but you only have about four that we know of that, that, that partnered with him. Now, do they, do they know what they were doing when, when they partnered with Jesus? Like, do, or do they know everything about him or about everything about what they were doing? Probably not. Like, did they, did they know in this moment that they were joining with the Savior who will be the sacrifice for sin in, at this point, demonstrating to all that he has the ability to forgive sin? I doubt it. I doubt they knew that. They just knew they had a friend who was sick. They knew they had a friend who was in need of healing. 
They knew there was a man who had been doing just that, healing the lame. And so this group comes together to get their friend, to get him in the presence of this teacher so so that maybe, just maybe, he might have mercy on him. You have this small group of people who become concretely sure about a small number of things. Again, one, there was a teacher, but he was different than any other teacher. He has the power to heal the sick, cure the lame, and give sight to the blind. Rumor has it he's the Messiah too. And then two, they knew their friend needed healing. Three, they knew their best chance for this healing for their friend was at the feet of Jesus. And four, they knew they were going to take him to Jesus. Just a few small things that they knew, but one large thing that they did, that faith and trust in Jesus, that he would do a mighty work in their friend's life. And they decided they were going to do whatever it took to get their friend to Jesus. Now, I know I've hammered it twice already, but I can't emphasize enough at this point how little they knew about Jesus, yet they were still driven to respond. Now, I, I'm not celebrating their ignorance. I'm like, that's, that's like we're, we're called to grow in our knowledge of Christ. We're called to, to grow in our doctrine, to grow in our, grow in our understanding. We're called to always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have. So I'm not celebrating. We need to grow in it, but I also want you to be aware of, of just how little they knew, but yet how much they were still willing to act, how they were still driven to respond. Like, again, could these guys, could they explain the Trinity? Do they know Jesus is functioning for, as perpetuation for sins or an atoning sacrifice? Do they know that the kingdom of God is both here now and yet to come? Most likely no to all of that. Yet they still have this bold, and I would even say they still have this aggressive faith. And so what leads them to this, right? What's, what's behind all this? And I think in this, how they see Jesus drives their response and drives their actions. How they see Jesus, and they see Jesus as healer, restorer, redeemer, merciful, loving, kind. They knew those things about Jesus. They had witnessed that in Christ. They had heard that in Jesus. They had experienced that themselves, watching and seeing him do this and listening to his words. They knew those things about Jesus to be true. So much so, they viewed this, they viewed Christ as such, and it drove them to act. They responded with action. They did whatever it took to get their friend to Jesus. They don't let any obstacle stand in their way, including the roof, right? They, they rip a hole in the roof to lower their friend and put their friend in front of Jesus. And then how does Jesus respond to these men and to the, men on, to the man on the mat? Verse 20, when Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. It's interesting to me in verse 20, it says when he saw their faith. So it wasn't just when he saw the faith of the man on the mat or just the faith of the men carrying the mat. Did you see this? It was a collective effort when Jesus saw their faith, all of their together. And look, we're going to get to the man on the mat in two weeks, all right? We're going to look at this from this angle and because there's a lot of faith that he shows. He lets his friends carry him to Jesus. He has hope that Jesus can and will heal him. He trusts Jesus to heal the most pressing need of his sin first. So he's placed his hope, his faith, his trust in Jesus. It is personal for the man on the mat. So I'm not downplaying that at all. But make no mistake, what I'm trying to do here and what the text does is it draws our attention to the fact to the fact that Jesus saw their faith. He saw their faith. It was a collective effort. So all four friends were united in their love for their friend who was paralyzed, right? All four friends are united in their hope and their trust and their faith that Christ would do such a thing. 
Four friends whose faith in Jesus lead them to not stop at any obstacle, to do whatever it takes to get their friend to Jesus. They knew this day was unlike any other. They knew that this was a day that their friend or their brother or their loved one could regain the use of his legs and not be confined to a mat anymore and nothing was going to stop them. And the life change that happened in their friend's life, it was a result of the collective faith of all of them responding to Jesus and participating in the work that he was doing. That's their response to Christ. Contrast that with the response of the crowd. Contrast that with the response of the crowd. Like the, the, the crowd had gathered and they listened to the same sermons. They listened to the same teachings. They saw the same miracles that Jesus was doing, but they don't participate with him. They don't partner up with him. Like we get the crowd's response in verse 26 at the very end. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. That's good. They're praising, they're worshiping there. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. It's an interesting line. We've seen remarkable things today. And yes, it does say they praise and they're amazed and, that, and that's good and I'm not discounting that, but it, it doesn't say everybody followed it doesn't say everybody surrendered to Christ. It doesn't say everybody repented and turned from their sin. I'm sure some of them did. I'm sure some of them did. But, but the scripture here just says they were amazed. They praised God. They were filled with all. We've seen some remarkable things today. Now, let me give just, a, I'm, I'm, you can hear I'm starting to beat up on the crowd a little bit. So I'll give just a little bit of grace at the beginning. Like the, the crowd, I mean, they need to be there. They, they need to be there to hear the teachings. They need to hear the sermons from Christ. They need to watch him work and, and do the miracles. They need to see that authority demonstrated. So I, I, that's, that's good. But where the fault is with the crowd, right, is we see how tragic it is when spectators stand in the way of those who need to experience Jesus. The crowd becomes the obstacle to a, a man being able to be healed by Christ. The, the, the tragedy is when the spectators become the obstacle. And what you see with this is the crowd, they're just interested in seeing the show. They're just interested in feeling that sense of awe and amazement. And so what that reveals is there's not much genuine connection there. It's all about them satisfying their need to be amazed. And they just... They stop short. They never stop to realize that, you know what, today could be a unique, day for, a unique day for someone to be healed. Today could be the day that where someone who's never seen the sun could see his first sunset. Today could be the day for the person who's been removed from the city, removed from his family because of leprosy, could be restored to the city, could be restored back to his family. This crowd wants more to be amazed by the teaching, wants more to be amazed by the miracles that they are watching, rather than actually going and bringing people to a place of redemption, hope, and healing. And why is their response off? It's because of how they see Jesus. They, they, they see Jesus as entertainment. They see Jesus as distraction. They see Jesus as, as hobby. Maybe they see Jesus as some type of popularity because everybody's there, so I'm gonna be there. Maybe they use Jesus as a way to feel good about themselves. He's doing all this amazing work. He's doing all this awesome thing and I'm here. So I'm kind of part of it. And so maybe they're using Jesus to feel better about themselves. And it's like, we can do that. We can do that. I'll, I'll, 
my third week in a row for a CrossFit example, so I'm, I'm calling a foul on me. I'll try to eliminate them from sermons that come. But there's a guy in our gym who can deadlift like 500 pounds. I don't know what it is exactly, but it is, it is an obscene amount. It's, it's offensive how much weight he can lift. But, but like when I watch and see him deadlift that amount, there's something weird to me. It's like, man, he's in my gym and he's deadlifting this amount. I'm like, man, I kind of feel better about myself that I work out in the same place. I don't know why, why my brain does that because his strength has nothing to do with whatever I can. I can't deadlift that amount, not even close to it, but there's something I'm here, I'm in the presence, I'm seeing, I'm watching and it makes me feel better about myself. And I just, sometimes we can do that with so many other things. We can watch somebody else, watch somebody else work, watch somebody else move and somehow it makes us feel better about ourselves. And I think that's happening here in and with this crowd. It makes me think of, of, uh, the, of, of James' words in James chapter 2, verse 17. He says, in the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. You see, a genuine faith transform, uh, transforms. A genuine faith connects us. A genuine faith motivates, compels, and spurs one to have a response to Jesus to where you're participating. You're participating in what he's doing and helping others experience him all the more. The crowd here, they inhibit the work. They're an obstacle to what's happened. They're so enthralled with Jesus, yet so passive with Jesus, that these men have to climb up on the roof of the place, dig it up just to be able to get their friend in front of Jesus. Like, they're not even willing to make a path. Like, they're not even willing to, to oh, there's somebody trying to get to Jesus? Well, let me scoot to the side so he can get up there and get in front of him. They're not even willing to do that. And so what you can see with the crowd is they're responding to Jesus with admiration. They are. They're responding to Jesus with admiration about who he is and about what he was doing. But they respond to Jesus with apathy about what he had really called and enabled them to do. Just think of it. How many more people could have experienced life change and healing and hope that day if the crowd had responded differently to Jesus. You know, the, the, the four men that carried their friend Jesus, like their names don't get in, recorded in the scripture. And so with that, they could be easily overlooked. They, they, they could be easily overlooked, but make no mistake, they are the linchpin in this story. Without their actions, we don't get this account that makes its way into three of the four gospels. Without their actions, this story doesn't happen. No, they respond and Jesus honors their faith and he works with them, works with them to accomplish his good work in their, in their friend's life who is paralyzed and to also to accomplish his work in Jesus's teachings for that day and to teach that he alone has the power to forgive sins. They're the linchpin in what unfolded that day, the work that God was doing in that person's life and what God was teaching about himself in and through the entire interaction. And so when I see that and I think about our church and I think about you and I think about me, there's the question that comes to mind is whose story are you the linchpin in and with, right? Like, who is it for you? Who's the friend, who's the coworker, who's the classmate that you know needs to experience the love and the mercy of Christ in their life? Who's your one to carry and put at the feet of Jesus? And I mean, you, you, you praise Jesus for how he does this in so many others' lives. Like you've, you've praised Jesus for how you've heard of him bringing hope and redemption and life change to so many. But I'm telling you, now is the time when your faith in who he is, when your faith in what he's done, when your faith in the work that he can and does do, when that can be focused on your friend, on your family member, on your loved one. If you want them to come to know Christ and have faith in him, I'm telling you, just 
just like we see here, it's going to be a joint effort. It's a collective effort of faith. And maybe it begins with you expressing faith in Christ that you're gonna participate in the work that he is doing. And part of that, sharing the hope of the gospel, taking loved ones, inviting loved ones, friends, family members, classmates, coworkers to experience the love and the grace and the presence of Christ. And it's, it's a way that we respond to Jesus. And that response comes from when we view him and are mindful, we view him redeemer, restorer, savior, healer, merciful, kind, loving when that's our view of Christ and that takes root inside of our heart, inside of our soul, it's going to bring about a change. It's going to bring about a sense of urgency. It connects us to his calls. It connects us to the work that he is doing. How do you view him and how are you responding to Jesus? So many times though, when we start to see that, it can bring up some feelings of insecurities. Who am I to do this? I'm not gonna be able to do this well or, or whatnot. And again, and, and this was why I was hammering on how little these men knew about Christ in this moment. Like you don't have to be some theological giant to be on mission for Christ, right? You don't have to be sanctioned by church leadership at Grace City to begin doing ministry in your home, in your class or in your office. You don't have to have some huge following on social media or some, to get some random, to pass some random litmus test for credibility or whatnot. Like a seminary degree is not required. Again, we, need, we want to grow in our knowledge of Christ. We want to grow in our doctrine. Those things are good to pursue, but don't let what you don't know about Jesus keep you from acting on what you do. And you know your experience with Christ. You know your journey with him and how the work that he's done in your life and, and how you've seen him work and move in the, in the lives of others. So if you see the need, act on it. Right? And, and, and don't shackle yourself with all this other stuff. Like you don't have to be able to explain every facet of your faith or every aspect of Jesus. You don't have to answer for all the actions of the church over the past two weeks, two months, or 2,000 years. You can be just like these four guys that knew their experience with Jesus. And I got to tell you, you're the expert on your experience with Jesus. So you've got your experience with him and then you know that, that life and hope and joy is found to him and let that drive your response to where you want to participate in the redeeming work that he is doing in this world. You can be just like these men that saw the need and acted on it. Why? Because you view Jesus as the one who heals, as the one who restores, as the one who redeems, as the one who gives life and hope and joy in this world. How do you respond to Jesus? Do, do you reply with the excuses of, I'm, I can't, I'm not qualified, I'm not trained? Do you re, or do you respond with obedience and action? Does your response open the door for you to participate in Jesus' ongoing mission in the world? Does your response open the door for Jesus to bless someone, to restore someone, or to teach the world about who he is and the hope that he brings? Does your response to Jesus fuel a sense of urgency to do whatever it takes to help someone encounter his hope, his restoration, and healing in their life? Our response to Jesus can oftentimes lead us either to being a spectator of his or to being a participant in his ongoing mission in the world. And as I think, as I reflect on our past 10 years and think about the next 10 years of us as a church, and I think about my hope for my life and your life for our future, I pray that our response 
I pray that our response to Jesus is never one of apathy or even simple admiration, but that it is a belief and trust in who he is, the call that he's given, and it is a response of participation in the work of his kingdom that we would live mindful of and with a sense of urgency that today could be the day, could be the unique day that he uses his people to bring life change to those who so desperately need it. I pray that's our response to Christ. I pray that be true of your life and of my life, that we would view him savior, healer, redeemer, restorer, and that would foster within us a sense of urgency about the work and mission that he is doing in this world and lead us to participate in it. That we would come out of the crowd, be one of these four, to do whatever it takes to bring our friends, our family, our loved ones, neighbors, coworkers, put them at the feet of Jesus where they could experience his love. I pray that for the future of our church. I pray that for the future of your life and of my life, that we would participate in his ongoing work. Let me pray for us. God, we love you, and we thank you for the story um, that, that, that shows us this incredible day of, of ministry and hope and life change and healing that took place. And God, I pray that we would learn from it. I pray that, that we would learn first and foremost that you alone can forgive sins, that you alone are the place of hope and healing and restoration and life change. So God, I pray that we would first find our foundation on that truth. God, I pray also that when we experience that and trust in that, Lord God, that that truth would change us, that that genuine faith would then connect us to the work that you are doing so that, God, we would not stop at just admiration, so that we would not be apathetic towards your call or what you're doing, Lord God, but that we would have the response and the sense of urgency to go out and participate in what you're doing in this world. God, help us learn from this text to have the right response to you and let our response to you drive the way um, that we live, that we love, and and that we uh, interact with those that you've placed in our life. God, help us to be a people who love you, to be a people who express that by being on mission in this world. God, we love you, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen.